Shalom Aleichem, Jim. Shalom, Rabbi. Shalom. It's so good to uh, see I, I you. I, it's good to be seen, especially at my age. Oh, well. Can, do, I, do. can I hear a, a drum? Can I hear the drum? Uh, the, anyway, so I, I'm really curious. Uh, how did your the hug go for you? How, how was your Sukkot? It was wonderful. Wonderful to be in the Sukkot. And, uh, you know, the, the traditional greeting after Sukkot is uh, in Yiddish we say a guten winter, which means have a good ah. have a good winter. And yeah, actually, okay. um, on Shmini Atzeret, which is the the eighth day, the, the day following Sukkot, which is here in mm-hmm. the land, it's the same thing as Simchat Torah. Whereas in the diaspora, it's two separate days. But on that day, we have the special prayer for rain, because there's a concept, a mystical concept, that that day is the, is the judgment day for the year's rainfall. And you know what? Quick as a flash, as soon as we finished saying that prayer, the weather changed here very drastically. And uh, we, we feel like winter is uh, upon us, which is a big blessing. And I just read, I just read uh, today yeah. that there's a, a freeze and a frost warning, like over large swaths of America. And I checked your state. You're in there, too. Exceptionally cold weather, yeah. right? It's amazing. We had the most beautiful weather, Rabbi, for for Sukkot. The only thing was that with, with this one uh, kind of disclaimer is that uh, we had some rain and we had some winds like I've never experienced with Sukkot. And we would go out every morning and there'd be a few little bits of the stalks that had fallen through the the, the shock, the roof. <laughs> And I kept thinking, okay, Jim, this is a lesson. This is a lesson. And, and, you know, because you think about things like that, because there's so many that we talked about last week. And so... But did the Arkansas stay up? Did it stay up in the wind? This is the Arkansas. This is the Arkansas. But so this morning, so like 70 degree weather, just perfect. And then this morning I got up 22 degrees. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, it's like it's like Hashem is being so specific with with uh, the, these as we're moving through time, and uh, which is a, a subject I think we'll be even talk about today. Absolutely. Is, is the, yeah, and about the, time. The whole the whole you know passage from from Sukkot now into the coming month of Marcheshvan, you know, it, it's uh, it's very. Um, Stark, you know, like this this passage now into the into the colder weather, because on a spiritual level, the way that we serve Hashem during these months is different. It's kind of like a winter mode in that it's very internal. It's very much kind of like um, directed inward <clears throat> now. And of course, when we leave the sukkah on the last day, as I as I mentioned in the video that we made over Sukkot, as when we leave the sukkah. Um, we pray to Hashem that all the positive energies that we mustered, you know, and all the, they're called the angels that we created, you know, through mm-hmm. the commandments associated with, with the sukkah and the four species, we pray that they should accompany us into the house and, and uh, stay with us the whole year. And <clears throat> when we leave the, the, the sukkah and we go back into the house, for a lot of people, it's uh, uh, an emotionally um, laden time, and it's a, it's kind of like a heartbreak. I, I can't tell you how many people talk like this. How many Jewish people say on the last day of Sukkot that it's it's like depressing because because there's something about the Sukkah mm-hmm. that is so 
intimate and it just feels like so right. You know, we really feel this connection with Hashem when we're in the sukkah and it's been so special, you know, and oh, now the year is starting and we have to go back into the house and that's why we have that prayer about, you know, the angels coming with us. But a lot of people say they're kind of like, you know, like crestfallen, like heartbroken to be leaving the sukkah. And the interesting thing yeah. about that is that 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 is actually a misplaced feeling. Because the truth is that if, if the sukkah teaches us anything, it's that we really have nothing in this world anyway, no anchor. It's all the same, but because the only anchor is Hashem, Hashem Himself, right. the Shekhinah itself. And so it's like, you know, the, the Talmud says about the tzaddikim, about righteous people, that even in death, they're called alive. Whereas the wicked people, even in life, they're called dead, right? So I think the yeah. idea is that when a person is really living for Hashem and really attached to Hashem, it's like, you know what? Whatever, wherever you want me, I'll be, you want me to be in this world, I'll be in this world. You want me to be in that world, I'll be in that world. It doesn't, I'll serve you, I'll serve you when I'm gone as well. It's like, whatever, it's up to you, I'm yours, right? So the thing is, it's like, okay, yeah, it was very lovely in the sukkah, it was very beautiful, but I'm going to go on now in the house and, it's, and I'm going to <clears throat> keep up my spirits. And, and, and the thing about that is, because the whole idea about the sukkah is that it's a metaphor for the transience of this world. So the, now, in other words, like we're experiencing so much passage now because we're experiencing the passage from the sukkah into the house. We're experiencing the passage from, from here in Israel, at least, there is no fall. You know, there is no fall in Israel. It goes from summer to winter. But the interesting thing is, um, and again, in that beautiful prayer that we say when we're leaving the sukkah, we, you know, we say, okay, you know, the angels that we create, and again, we have to understand what that means. It's because with every mitzvah that we fulfill, with every good deed, it's associated with like a, a positive force that we bring into the world that stays with us our whole life as kind of like testifying that, you know, the, of our life for Hashem. But another part of that prayer when we leave the sukkah is, as you know, famously, may we merit to sit in the sukkah of the Leviathan, in the Man, in the no. coming world. So a couple of weeks back, we talked about whales. I think we we played some music of the whales, and I pointed out that the that in modern Hebrew, Leviathan is a is a whale, and the Leviathan whale, yeah. is this beast that Hashem created in the in the beginning of this week in Parshat Breshit, which is, you know, alternately translated as a, some some sort of a sea monster or something like that. A, and, uh, you know, the whole tradition of our sages that there was a male and a female and that, and that um, one of them is uh, like on ice to be served like at a, the banquet for the, for the tzaddikim. And this is all a total parable. And then there's a, the, the, from the skin of the Leviathan, Hashem makes a sukkah for the righteous in the future. And we're only talking about the soul world, right? But the interesting thing that we didn't mention that week <clears throat> is what is this word Leviathan, Le Le Leviathan, it's called in English. It's a translation yeah. of the Hebrew. What does it mean? The root of the word, this is so beautiful and so deep. The root of the word in Hebrew is to accompany. Hmm. To accompany. And so when we leave the sukkah, we say two things. We say, may the, may the angels that we created through these good deeds accompany us, that we should sit in the sukkah of the <coughs> Leviathan, which means its whole, its whole concept on a spiritual level is, is an accompaniment. What I mean to say is, one of the aspects of the profound lesson that all of this is teaching us is that what accompanies us to the next world is what we accomplish in this world. That's why, listen to this, it's very deep on your heart. 
the Leviathan is the symbol of the reward for the righteous in the coming world because it means accompaniment and all we take with us is what we manage to accomplish in this world and that accompanies yeah. us. So the whole sukkah thing is such a trip because it all represents these concepts that are, that are absolutely um, transfiguring and that transpose because they're not really of this world. You know, it's a, <coughs> it's a bridge. It's absolutely a bridge. I have a question. Rabbi, I have a question. Uh, you, when you uh, spoke about uh, Leviathan, uh, does, does it also, the thing that you just framed it in this very metaphor, beautiful metaphor, could it also mean the sort of uh, uh, enormous bounty that God bestows upon us that we take into the next world is could that also sure. be the reason it's 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 characterized as this as this massive creature that's also a secret of um, the verse i don't have it in front of me now in psalms um how how great is the goodness that you have hidden for the righteous in the in the uh -huh. world to come so it's that's definitely all connected and i uh, think that deserves a, a sip of of our wonderful teas well, a minus, uh, minus. Do you have your teeter? Okay, if you say so, Jim. Yeah, we we do a lachaim. Lachaim. So. Amen. Oh, that was so well timed, Jim. Ah. So. <laughs> now I'm gonna cough. <laughs> well, we can edit that out. Too much ginger. Too we, much ginger. You know, we can edit tea. your cough out. That's no problem. So, okay. the thing is, you know. We go through this cycle and it never gets old because that's like this newness of Hashem. You know, the, the, the year is so, um, f you know, just like um, <clears throat> bursting with this sensitivity of, a, of, the, of what a person goes through during this, these, this Hashem's divine cycle. And then the timing now of leaving the circle, coming into the house, the weather changing, the, the style of how we are... Uh, our posture, as it were, with with Hashem and what we're trying to accomplish now, and all the the the, the unbelievable, <clears throat> you know, um, not pressure, but the but the but the intensity of the past months, from the summer months and leading into the high holy days, and all of this intensity, and now it's kind, it's basically kind of like put your money where your mouth is. It's like, have we accomplished anything? Mm -hmm. Is our tshuva real? Have we really? become the new people that we promised Hashem that we would become. And this is the time to prove it now, because now the, we've, we've landed. You know, we're out of the sukkah, we're out of, we're, we're, we're now we now need to translate that, that very, very um, high state of mind, you know, we need to translate it into everyday life. And just in time for that, we have the renewed cycle of the Torah reading, right. which honestly is like the most amazing experience ever. I don't even know how to describe it because it, it is so um, deep to see that no matter what we thought we knew, it's like we come to the, the, the Torah reading, especially now in Breshit, in Genesis, we come to it and we realize that we don't know anything. <clears throat> and that is part of the whole secret of, of Moshe breaking the tablets, you know, and changing, as it were, the whole system of how we retain our knowledge and, and how it advances us forward and our closeness to Hashem and the acquisition of, of true Torah, what it means, you know, and 
I know we have a lot of new listeners, and so from time to time we really need to define the terms that we're that we're talking about in our in our programming. And by by Torah, we don't just mean the the five books of Moses, although that is a, a, a certainly a, a major thread and recurrent theme because of the whole idea of the um, the timelessness of the of the the Torah reading cycle and the fact that. When we read the weekly portion, we are reading an ongoing saga of our own life story, our own developments. We're really being recreated now because we're all the first man. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean for us that creation is beginning all over again? But when we say Torah, we don't only mean the five books of Moses. We mean the whole concept of what Torah means, which means, first of all, instruction. It, mean, it, it, yeah. it, means, it means showing a way. Yeah. And it is basically the, uh, a way of life, a way of life that Hashem bequeathed to Israel to give over to the whole world, to connect with Hashem, to find Hashem. And that's really, you know, also want to remind our listeners that this podcast is a project of Jerusalem Lights, which is our nonprofit organization whose goal, we say the motto is Torah for everyone, which means Jew and non-Jew, it means the whole world. And the idea being basically that our mission statement is to aid in the understanding of every person of the importance of having a personal relationship with the Creator, to find the Creator in our lives, and to develop and, and really um, invest in having this personal relationship. So we, so we are lifelong students of Torah, and now we begin again the cycle at the very, very beginning which is it's just so, so amazing because all of creation is being renewed and really we're not only learning this week how once upon a time at a certain point in time, which there really was a certain point in time, even science is pointing right. to this now. We've been speaking about that so much over the past few weeks. There's a certain point in time when the creator decided there's going to be this world of ours, right? Mm -hmm. but, but at the same time, that's going on constantly. Hashem is always renewing creation. And these are tremendously deep um, themes that we need to really understand. And I, I just want to say one thing. I'm going to give the floor to you. Mm -hmm. And I have so much that I, I want to talk about with Parshat Bashir. But there's one thing I want, I want us to consider as we continue now that I want everyone to hear. Because there's a very important principle in Torah study. I know we have a lot of serious, devoted Torah students that are listening and, and those that have experience in, in Torah study know that there's a principle, which is that you never can, uh, I think the word is, in English is extrapolate, you never can interpret a verse to the extent that it loses its simple interpretation. In other words, there are many, many yeah. levels of Torah study. Everybody knows that there's pardes, pshat, rem is drosh, sod, which means, that's the orchard, right? It means there's the simple interpretation, there's illusion, there's exposition, and then there's the secret level, right? There's, and then, of course, there's the idea that there are 70, 70 levels of meaning of every, of every word of Torah. So, so uh, you know, when we study, we know that there are so many different levels of interpretation, and they're all true at the same time, and they have um, 
symbolic, uh, inter, you know, um, uh, levels of meaning and ethical and moral, all sorts of things. And then there's also the simple idea of what we're reading. And that is like a golden rule. It's like a, a cornerstone yeah. of Torah study. Don't take a verse and so fetch it out and twist it, and s that it so that it no longer ha bears any uh, resemblance to, to its original meaning, except that there is an exception to that rule. And the exception to that rule really is Brishit, is this is oh this Torah portion? Because and this is the mistake that so many yeah. people make in tr in trying to, you know, in, you know, they look at the, the Genesis narrative as a Bible story, or and then they yeah. those that have faith, you know, take that and they say, well, this is this what happened, but they're hard pressed to understand things like the creation of Adam and Eve and uh, the snake. And the tree of knowledge and what it was all about and 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 so I mean so many things happen in this week's Torah portion by the time that we get to the tenth generation and the, the slang of 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 Abel and the, and the total disappointment that Hashem has by the end what does any of this mean so the the idea is you know the, the great Ramban Nachmanides he puts it very beautifully he says when it comes to the secrets of Genesis he says these are concepts that whether or not they have a um, a physical or a material representation in this world. It's hard to say that they don't, but whether or not they do is not even the point. They also stand for spiritual concepts, right? And 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 so I, I mean, people are just absolutely bent out of shape on the one hand, and then there's other people who come up with the most ridiculous, ridiculous, self-aggrandizing scenarios of what they think all of all of this means, whereas the true Jewish Torah approach to understanding what this first Torah portion, Genesis 1, is all about, is that it is basically the saga of Hashem's desire, as it were, to bestow goodness upon man, which is why he created the world in the first place. And everything else is commentary in that everything else is this is the story of man being put in a in a in an environment where he constantly has to exercise free will. Yeah. 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 The the thing that struck me as I began to get into the study and, and prepare to talk about Brashit and uh, <laughs> the word prepare, I mean, your head wants to explode, Rabbi. And I know a lot of our, our viewers and listeners because you, you know, you, you, you really kind of nailed it right there when you said uh, that when you mentioned knowing God, because, because right in this first, the whole first book, especially this first uh, Torah Parsha Breshit, it's the beginning of many things. It's the beginning of, this is the beginning of wisdom. Because really what, what I found is this really teaches you to have the awe, sometimes translated as fear. When you read the opening verses of uh, uh, Breshit, you begin, if you really take to heart, as you often love to say and we love to hear, open up your heart in the deepest way. If you'll have the humility to accept this as the truth and then stay with it and really dig for the truths because as we all know, every year when you come back to it, you're going to find a new truth. And, and I, was, I was struck with the idea, two or three ideas that came 
that, that Hashem accessed for me when I began this study, and that was uh, the uh, conjunction of science and Torah. This is an ongoing debate that's been going on, and I think it's getting even more extreme. You want to you want to remark about no, that? No, I'm just I, excited that you want to talk about that because I actually have some things to say about that. But go on. Yeah. Well, the thing that the thing that uh, there were so many things to consider about what to share with everybody. But one of the things that that I learned from a, a concept that that I uh, encountered so many years ago in Torah study was this uh, amazing idea that Hashem is said to have created, what was it, 924? Oh my gosh, 974. Yeah, 974. I can't believe you're going Worlds. there. I'm delighted. Well, but I'll, let me give you 974 give what? a little bit of what? Uh, generations. Exactly. Or worlds. Exactly. Or, yeah, yeah, generations. Before, before Adam, yeah. you know what that is? That is so cool. That is the secret of prehistoric man. Yeah. Yes, yes. But what he, this is what was remarkable. And again, my, my memory fails me where I, I came across this, this additional piece of enlightenment per that. And that is, for a long time, Rabbi, I didn't understand because it, when, you, when the sages tell you this, you think, well, it, it sounds like God uh, couldn't make up his mind. And it had nothing to do with that. It had the idea. You see the enormous love that Hashem has for all of his creation, primarily humanity, but also he's, he's like a, 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 a watchmaker who loves every single piece of the watch and loves the time that he put. Well, sorry, uh, besides part, that, no look, look at it as the process of refinement. Mm -hmm. where, whereas yes, all yes. The, we're, we're, we need to talk about it now more in detail, but all those previous generations left an imprint on this world. Yeah. It's almost like yes. a certain, I'm using this very loosely, but there is a certain deja vu in the human yeah. condition because, you know, remember that when Moshe dedicates the tabernacle, he takes it apart and puts it together every day for, mm -hmm. for a week, yes, just, for a week. Yeah. That is, a, yeah. and since the Mishkan, since the tabernacle is a parallel to the universe, that right. week of the dedication is a parallel to the worlds that Hashem created before, and again, right. I'm glad that we have video so everyone can see, I'm doing air quotes, before he was satisfied with this world. Because yeah. again, it's all part of a massive tikkun. And, and this is going to tie into next week's Parsha a little bit. And that is the idea that when we see that Hashem was, was, uh, was allowing these creations to develop, he was allowing them to develop, and, we would, and, 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 and he planned that we would find evidence of these previous creations so that we would know that there was a... Uh, that these eons, these, I, I think, what is it, the, 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 the sages actually uh, came up with the idea of, of the first few verses of Torah. The, these, uh, these eons is something like fi roughly 14 to 15 billion years uh, uh, initially. Go ahead. <laughs> I, no, I, 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 exactly, exactly. I, I, yeah. No, but I was. Let me. I'll try to finish the thought up because I don't want to. I don't want our listeners to, you know, uh, they, uh, to to bore them with this. But what excited me was the idea that that Hashem's love for His creation 
was that the reason that each generation was destroyed was because the generation did not accept Torah. And so Hashem let it go back to tohu bohu, to back to to void the, and confusion. That idea of to, of tohu vavo, of the of the null and void. I mean, it's so deep. What's going on there? What was accomplished? You know, it is a good question. What was accomplished exactly? Again, because the basis yeah. of everything is like Hashem's kindness. Yeah. Uh, can can I take this now? Can I take take this to a couple let me, of places? Let me let me wrap this. I I I know our listeners want to hear what you have to say more than me, but I want to hear what you the, have to say. I, the reason I, I well, thank you. I, what I wanted to say was this is what this is what I was reading that struck me is is so humbling to read this, and you know I'll tie it into next week's parsha. Maybe we'll even invoke it next week. The thing is is that Hashem, when He came to the world that began with what we're talking about with with the man that we and the woman that we call Adam and Eve, that it got to the point again where the with this world, the world that we're talking about, would they accept Torah? And we have we have Noah to to thank for that. Because if it had not been for the 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 uh, the life that, that Noah lived uh, according to what he knew of what what was what were actually basic Torah teachings, uh, he was actually keeping the, the the Noahide laws. We're told the first six laws. If it hadn't been for him and for Hashem seeing that, all right, this one is worth this world is worth saving because this man and his family will bring forth the generation twenty six generations later. That these these this family's descendants will accept Torah and the world will be sustained. I mean that is just staggering, a mind-boggling, staggering thought. Obviously, yeah. it's not an easy thing to be a person in this world because you see the un total unraveling <laughs> of Adam's descendants by the end of the parsha and and the, and the necessity for the singularity of Noah to stand out because the world became so corrupt. What's that all about? What's that all about? Mm -hmm. So obviously, it's a, a difficult assignment, and and there's something that I've been discussing a lot lately in conversation with students and friends and family and you, and in videos. Is something that I'm studying myself a great deal lately that I feel is a major component to everything that people need to understand, especially in this generation. And that is this concept, which is, which is absolutely, you know, um, preeminent in Torah thought, which is that we live in a world of concealment. Now, yeah. that, that is from the get-go. Again, Parshat Breshit, the first Torah portion of Genesis, nothing is as it appears. And that's my word of advice as the key for those students that are listening, students of Torah, we're all students of Torah that would like to approach, like you say, with reverence, with awe, uh, with humility. Um, because I always say that Torah study is a lifetime and maybe I maybe I, it's over the top. Like maybe I I say that too often. But honestly, when it comes to this one Torah portion that we are reading this week, it is just so totally unfair and frustrating that it's this Shabbat, and then we're going to go on already to Noah. But that's the way the cycle mm -hmm. works because this is an absolute a life a one lifetime of a normal human being is not enough at all. Not enough at all to get any idea of what this is really all about. And, that's, and just in some Zoom classes that I've had and, and uh, a number of 
of different classes that we've given over, I mean, just every detail is so significant of, of understanding what this is all about. Who were Adam and Eve? What was what was Cain and Abel all about? What was the 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 the, the angel guarding the path to the Garden of Eden with the, with this the, the ever turning sword? What are these things really all about? They, they, it's not something that can just be uh, captured in a Doré painting, you know? And, and it, that's not it. There's something else going on here altogether. And, you know, there's an, a verse that I want to mention now from the beginning of Exodus when Hashem was introducing Himself to Moshe. In chapter 3 and verse 15, famous verse, Hashem says, you know, because Moshe was asking Hashem, uh, by, by the way, again, I, I really want to be conscious of this in this new cycle of uh, podcasts because I know that our audience is growing and th that's why I wanted to reintroduce what Jerusalem Lights is all about and re reintroduce the word Torah, which of course is the way of life of the people of Israel and all those who embrace Hashem, the God of Israel. But what is this word Hashem that we use all the time? So Hashem means literally the name and it is a way that we reverentially refer to the word in Hebrew, which is usually translated in English as the Lord, not God, which is God, but his name, which is translated, I don't really think it's a great translation of the Lord, but it's the one that is written with Yud and He and Vav and He, which is not pronounced the way it is written, but rather it is pronounced as Adonai, which means master, which we also normally would not pronounce ex except in prayer and study, but I'm yeah. using this as a teaching moment, so I'm, I allowed myself to say it. The reason that we refer to it as Hashem, the name, reverentially, is because it's a form of taking Hashem's name in vain to kind of just like banter it around, you know. But what I wanted to say is this, and this is the, this is the important thing. In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 15, when Moshe is asking what's his name, and God says, he gives him his name, and he says, this is my name forever, and this is my remembrance from generation to generation. This is my name forever and my remembrance from generation to generation. I want to say two things about that verse. One is that our sages receive the tradition from, again, when we say that our sages say something, it's not something that they ever made up. It's the tradition that came down to them from Hashem through Moshe at Mount Sinai. But what we are taught is that that verse is signaling this concept that Hashem himself said, this is my name forever, and this is my remembrance from generation to generation. Do not read my name the way it is written. And one hint to that is the fact that when it says, this is my name forever, the word le'olam, which means forever, is written without a vav. And so when olam, which means, this is by itself, in itself is a huge lesson, but the word olam means the world, the universe. It also means forever. But when it's written without a vav, it spells the word hidden, concealed. Mm. So that teaches me two yeah. things. One thing is that Hashem's name is concealed. He doesn't want it pronounced in this world the way it's written. And the other is that his presence is concealed in this world. And the two are connected because the great sages teach that it were Hashem's name to be pronounced the way it is written in this world, there would no longer be any free choice were it to be pronounced the way it is written, because things would be so clear. But instead now we have this, this, this dichotomy, illusion, and the idea is that Hashem concealed His presence in this world to such an extent, this is one of the most profound 
uh, ideas that I've ever seen expressed by our, our holy sages. He, he concealed his presence in this world to such an extent, knowingly, that he even gives a person the opportunity to deny that he exists altogether. You know, as he right. so conceals himself that if you want, you could say, I don't even believe in God altogether. Hashem says, okay. That's the challenge. And it's, this is all coming forth from this Torah portion of Genesis, that, that, that we live in a, in a world of, in, of, of, of total concealment. Yeah, and, and the, that, those four-lettered words, which, by the way, are not pronounced Jehovah. Sorry, you know, it's not pronounced that way. Thank you. In fact, uh, the, the name first appears at the creation of, of Adam and Eve, if I'm, if I'm at the right place in the, you are. In the Torah. The, the yud and the hay and the vav and the hay, first, because before that, the name is Elohim, which, is the, which reflects the natural, um, mathematical, precise uh, nature God, God as manifest in nature. And then on the deeper level that we right. talk about, Elohim being yeah. the concept of uh, um, justice, whereas Hashem, the yud hay and vav hay, mm -hmm. the concept of chesed, of love, of kindness, of mercy. Right. And the the reason that it's that Elohim is is plural is not because there were three people there, as some people like to posit, because God is one, God is is uh, perfect intrinsic unity, unity, and something which which by the way science is is finally beginning to apprehend. This is the uniform. This is the uniform. Uh, 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 theory that they're looking for the unified theory that, that the, the, the theory of everything the unified of everything is right there in front of us right there in the torah but when hashem finally gets around to forming adam and eve the the those four letters are used because it also reflects the merciful aspect of hashem and there's something very interesting that i never noticed before i know that you know this but i wanted to share this with with our listeners and the word bara, which of course is, is how the, the Torah begins with speaking of creation, bara is used in a way that um, means created from nothing, which only Hashem can do. He literally creates, but, when, but finally we get to, I think, chapter 2 of Genesis, suddenly Hashem employ, the, the Torah employs the word uh, yetzer or yetzerah, right? The yetzer, and it's it's suddenly your ear, you know, opens up a little bit, and you think, wait a minute, I this is a familiar word, and this is so amazing. Uh, again, the the exactness of the Torah and, and and these concepts that Hashem is teaching is at that same place where we see the four letters, the the merciful aspect of God used uh, when when talking about Adam and Eve. When it says not bara but yetzer, uh, yetzer formed, he fashioned, and so this means that that humanity or human being, that there was already a creation of a human being, but now Hashem says we're going to do something that will uh, kickstart this this evolutionary process, and I, I hate to use that word, but I did, because that's that's a loaded word right there, which we could get into. But the word, this this word, Yetzir, has two yuds in it. And that's amazing, because they don't need to be there. 
And suddenly you see that the two yuds means that Hashem has imbued this, this human being with something that no other creature has. And that is a Yetzer Hara and a Yetzer Hatov. That's what the two yuds stand for. And I understand that the two yuds also... A good inclination and a bad inclination. A bad inclination. This is or, or what we like to call a conscience. That's a, maybe the short, short form of the word. And for that to appear there with those two yuds is uh, a huge marker, I think, in the Torah and to show Hashem's relationship with this particular creation. Absolutely, absolutely. And there's so much that we learn from that. And again, this is very overwhelming and I feel very frustrated because there's so much that we would want to share on this Parsha. But like Hillel the Elder said, go out and learn. <laughs> you know, go out and learn because it is, it is so... It's just, you know, as long as everyone understands, there's no way that we can do justice to it. There's so much that I would want to mention. But I, I want to say something that, because you brought up a little bit earlier, the concept of science, which we've been talking yeah. about so much the past few weeks with the amazing and exciting advances, advances with the James Webb Telescope and everything. We've been talking about that a lot. So you mentioned 974 generations. Kudos to you, because nobody, nobody has that on the tip of their tongue, but you, of course. So I get this email from Eliana, and I apologize, Eliana, that I have not yet answered it. it actually, she actually wrote it, I think, um, before Rosh Hashanah, but of course it's been a very hectic time. And this is what she wrote. Uh, Eliana is a very devoted um, listener and viewer. She wrote, um, how do we reconcile, and she puts in quotations, prehistoric man and our 5,783 years since creation of Adam? Personally, I attempt not to second-guess Hashem. Is prehistory viable? Thanks for answering later at your convenience. So, for, if I want to take this now and, and develop the idea that you already brought up. And first of all, you know, believing Jews, knowledgeable believing Jews who have fear of Hashem and some, some knowledge of Torah are not intimidated or afraid in the least bit of science nor is there any contradiction whatsoever. And those that try to somehow cramp everything into these six days and say, well, you know, this is what exactly what it says, so it has to be that. There's very, very deep understandings of this, and there is never a contradiction at all. And that's, that's, that's what science is now learning, as you know. Anyway, so you mentioned something um, at which you had really on, the, on your fingertips, so um, that was great, but I want to... I want to mention to you, I have this book here. This book is very hard to come by. It's pretty much... I have that book. Oh, you do? Okay, I'm not surprised. But yeah. it's hard to find now. Yeah. And it's Our friend. Our great friend. Yes. Is responsible for, for editing that book. Who, who is that? Uh, Rabbi Sutton? Avram Sutton. Yes. So the book, of course, is Rabbi Arya Kaplan of Blessed Memory. Mm -hmm. And it's called Immortality, Resurrection, and the Age of the Universe, colon... A Kabbalistic View. And it's basically essays, essays by Rabbi Kaplan. But the interesting thing that I want to point out to uh, everybody is that this book was published by the Association of Orthodox Jewish Scientists. Yeah. Did you know that there's an yeah, a lot of people wouldn't th <laughs> yeah, a right. lot of people wouldn't think that there is Such an association a thing. Like right that. yes there is an association yeah. of Orthodox Jewish Scientists and they published this wonderful book. And so there's some amazing things here. And so 
First of all, the first thing I want to say is, as we mentioned earlier, there are always many opinions. And there's an expression in Chazal, right? The sages say, Elu ve'elu divrei Elohim chayim, which means these and these are the words of the living God, which is the whole concept for those that have some background or, or understanding of how Talmud is studied. You know that there are many opinions and that there's something to learn from all of them. So it's not about so much about who is right, especially when it comes to non-halachic matters. In other words, when there is a, a debate or, or a question, divergence of opinion about something that doesn't have a practical bearing on everyday life in terms of how we have to conduct ourselves, but it's just a question of theology or of, or of some, some sort of, um, you know, some sort of um, metaphysical understanding, it doesn't really matter because there's no practical difference. So we, so we try to understand everybody's opinion. In any event, there's some very, very learned essays here that Rabbi Kaplan put together with different sources, and he talks about exactly about this question. The first thing that he says is that there's no contradiction and there's no fear uh, of, of, of uncovering something that would contradict the Torah because there isn't any contradiction. And so he, he, he mentions a number of different approaches to understanding this whole conundrum of the uh, atomic clock, as it were, of, of, of the age of the universe versus Chazal. And he talks about uh, a whole concept. Um, and he, and he bring, I'm not going to mention every source. Now, he cites many important sources in Jewish literature from time immemorial, right? Um, <clears throat> so he talks about the first of all, the teaching that the most important teaching, which is the basis of everything, is that the world will exist for 6,000 years, right? And now we're in 5783. That's why people are getting antsy, right? The world will exist for 6,000 years, and in the 7,000... They better. <laughs> <laughs> right? And, and, and how basically there are seven sabbatical cycles, but, but, the, but there were... Because the world is destined to exist, as it were, for 49,000 years. Um, the idea is... Uh, that's one idea. How, when those began, what their length is, how we count them, um, and which cycle are we in today... And then there is an idea that, as you mentioned, there were some of these sabbatical cycles of time before Adam existed. Because before Adam existed, there were not only worlds, open up your heart in the deepest way, not only worlds that Hashem, Hashem created, but there were orders of time before this creation. And then there is the exact teaching that you mentioned that there were 974 generations before Adam. Now here's the details that, I, that I'm, I'm so glad that you brought that up, and now I want to fill in the blanks. Where is that number derived from? Not, is it an area code? <laughs> where, where is that can number? I hazard a, can I hazard a guess? Sure. Is it, uh, is it from... Um, is it from the idea that Hashem... Uh, decided to do a th uh, give these four, these creations a thousand generations. A thousand, uh, Jim. This is traditionally where I get up and kiss you on the forehead. That's how I always react when someone has a beautiful thought of Torah. This is unbelievable. Exactly. The no I'm reading now from yeah. this essay called "The Age of the Universe" by Rabbi Arya Kaplan, published by the American Association of Jewish Sciences, and he re he writes. The number is derived from the verse from Psalms 105.8. Remember forever his covenant, a word he commanded for a thousand generations. Yes. Amen. 
Yeah. He says this would indicate that the Torah was destined to be given after after 1000 generations. Since Moses was the 26th generation after Adam, there must have been 974 generations before Adam. And then there is an idea that 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 these generations existed in the sabbatical cycle before Adam's creation. So, um Go, here's here's what I wanted to tell you now. This is the this is the. Um, then he talks about fossils. He talks about he talks about um, dinosaurs and how and how um, these creatures lived during previous sabbatical cycles, and and beautiful beautiful uh, ideas. And he, and he look look at this line, Rabbi Rabbi Ari Kaplan, one of the greatest Torah educators oh. of modern times, right? And himself a physicist, right? Mm -hmm. He says, Amazing. he says, nowadays, many people in the Torah world feel threatened by geological and paleontolo paleontological discoveries. They regard dinosaurs and other fossils as problems that can only be resolved with great difficulty. Here, on the other hand, one of the leading Torah figures of the last century takes an entirely different approach, seeing these discoveries as upholding an important Torah teaching. And then he goes on. Anyway, the main thing that I wanted to share with you on this, on this note is from Rabbi Kaplan's cites from Rabbi Isaac of Akko who was a very important sage that was a student and colleague of the Ramban and one of the foremost Kabbalists of his time. And this is what he says. He says, um, since the sabbatical cycles existed before Adam, their chronology must be measured not in human years, but in divine years, because there was no yeah. human time before Adam. Thus, yeah. the Sefer HaTemunah, this is an important work that he quotes, is speaking of divine years when it states that the world is 42,000 years old. This has some startling consequences. Listen carefully. For according to many Midrashic sources, a divine day is 1,000 earthly years long, and a divine year consisting of 365 and one quarter days is equal to 365,250 earthly years. Thus... According to Rabbi Isaac of Akko, the universe would be 42,000 times 365,250 years old. This comes out to be 15,340,500,000 years. A highly significant figure, Rabbi Kaplan concludes this paragraph writing, from calculations based on the expanding universe and other cosmological observations, modern science has concluded that the Big Bang occurred approximately 15 billion years ago. But here we say the same figure presented in a Torah source written over 700 years ago. Yeah, that's amazing. And I, I think we, it, we need to reiterate that this does not disabuse or destroy the model that we see in the seven time periods of creation because because it, Hashem created time for for us for humanity and time wasn't really it, that's the reason that the Jewish calendar begins with the birth of Adam and and that that at, when Adam came into uh, in fact if you look uh, at first he's called Ha'adam you know the man and i want to as as you uh love to say and i love to hear you say i'll see you and i'll raise you wait that's I my wanna, line i want to share You're starting to use my lines I now i it's it's copyrighted come folks. up with your own so, line <laughs> no i'm saying as you say i wanted i wanted to to uh to give you credit for bringing that up in it no one would ever see that in a tourist study ever before and that's why i enjoy it so 
the the something else that I came across that while we were I, I was preparing for this was I was reading a book also <laughs> that that I wanted to to quote and this is going to this is going to tie into next week's parsha and I hope I remember to bring this up next week because there's an amazing thing that that I, I want to share with people but I'm going to whet their appetite so they'll come back to next week's Torah parsha and and our audience will return about what I'm talking about right now, and I'm going to bring up somebody that you would never expect uh, in this discussion, Edgar Allan Poe. Cool. Now, Edgar Allan Poe, as you know, uh, Edgar Allan Poe is, is someone who was a man of letters. He was uh, uh, a, a great literary light in his time. A Baltimore but he's also native. Known a Baltimore <laughs> native, yes. By the way, who's also infamous for being a, a horrendous drunk. But when, when he when he did not, but but when he did not he and he had times he had great times of sobriety and and when i began to read and i grew up loving edgar Allan poe and i always thought that there was more to this man than uh mysteries and poems which were all amazing and oh the, show everybody um, your t-shirt oh well yes i i didn't even think about right? that I, i'll have to i'll have i'll have to point if they can see it here it's uh it says the raven which actually, in this instance, has nothing to do with Edgar Allan Poe. It has to do with the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, but it's still it's, Edgar Allan Poe's most famous poem. It is. It was. It's the poem that made him a superstar. But so why do I bring him up? Why do I bring yes, him why? up? And here's the reason. Yeah, because um, when people talk about the Big Bang, it's a fairly, in, in terms of, of knowledge and science, it's a fairly recent development. And it basically uh, appeared in the 30s. And a lot of people uh, don't realize that it was a, it was a Catholic uh, priest that is, is given credit for coming up with the concept of the Big Bang. And of course, um, the Big Bang is, if you have an open mind to the scientific view of the world at all, and you read the beginning uh, verses of, of Torah, You'll you'll see this concept, and of course the the, uh, the 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 sages have held this for for centuries. The idea of a big bang. And it's such a perfect description, I, really. Would, it's the opposite of being intimidated yeah. by science, because when has, when if Hashem created everything from nothing, all of a sudden, yeah. instantaneously brought forth all of creation, and then during the six days departmentalized where everything goes, that is the big bang. Well, you know, the, the argument these days, Rabbi, is, is that people say that the Torah talks about the why and science talks about the how. But I'm finding, Rabbi, that the more that we read these discoveries, that Torah really does answer both those questions as you get into the science of the Torah. And not only and that, you know, but one of the, the most beautiful thing is that yes, now sir. science is asking why. Yes, yes. So anyway, so anyway, this this I, I can't remember the gentleman's name, the the priest that came up with it, um, but uh, and this is I'm, I'm sorry, this is the fault of, of too many uh, too many days in front of a playing rock and roll records in a studio. The, the the music music is in my head all the time. But anyway, towards the end of his life. Edgar Allan Poe decided to write his magnum opus. Now, it wasn't that big, but it was a slim volume. It was the last thing he published 
a year before he died. It was called Eureka. And in Eureka, he, w he wanted to show the, the reading public uh, his own worldview of, of how things came into being. And I have to read you just a couple of sentences from this amazing treatise. And remember, the theory of the Big Bang is said to have come up uh, and, and, and published in the 1930s, I think 33 in fact. So this is what he says that in its original state, he's talking about the world now. This is from, this is from his, his writing that, that we just mentioned. From its original state, matter took the form of a perfectly unified, undifferentiated entity, a primordial particle, a primordial particle. Under divine impulsion, this particle exploded outward in a flash. Minute atoms of matter were radiated spherically and distributed through space to form the universe of stars. And from this principle and the aim of this rapid emanation of matter was the multiplicity out of unity, diversity out of sameness, and heterogeneity out of homogeneity, complexity out of simplicity, and this diffused state of matter we call abnormal. And this, this matter has an appetite for unity, and he, he, he said this, and he said they're drawn to each other, and he said this, this appetite for unity is what we call gravity. You know what? That this was written in life-changing. What you just read, I'm is that amazing? I'm, I'm totally floored and shocked because it's such an accurate mm -hmm. description of what our sages teach Pro took place. It's amazing. Amen. It's like prophetic. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm gonna next week. I'm gonna bring. I won't. I may read that again, but next week I'm gonna talk about uh, where he got these ideas. It will be, it will be, uh, but it will be tied into the flood of Noah. So I just want to whet everybody's what appetite. Teaser, I can't I wait. Yeah, I, I think it was amazing. So anyway. That is amazing. And, back and to you. The thing is, you know, all, all these, all these things are pointing to, to the creator. All these things are pointing to the creator. So again, everything right. in Genesis is an allegory. All the things that that need to be understood, whether it is um, the waters being separated, the creation of Adam and Eve, the, the snake, it's all about Hashem's plan for Adam, which is all of us, for the continuation. And it's not a simple story at all. So, but everything is leading leading back, leading the world back to see the hand of the creator, not just about intelligent design, but why. Just today, I'm reading about um, something new that the scientific world is talking about, which, which was first discovered or first, or first noticed on, um, I looked on the calendar, it was October 9th, which was the eve of Sukkot. And what is it? Mm -hmm. Astronomers detected the brightest light flash ever seen Astronomers detect wow. the, the brightest light flash ever seen, and they say probably from the, a black hole's birth. It was a burst of gamma rays. It came from an event that occurred 2.4 billion light years from Earth, a flash that impacted long wave radio communication. So this 
took place as it were, it was first seen on a certain day in Hashem's timing, which was the eve of Sukkot in this year, October 9th, but it actually is 2.4 billion years. Now, I don't know anything about gamma rays. I just remember the Hulk, you know, Doc Bruce Banner, <laughs> belted by gamma rays, turned into the Hulk. Remember Marvel Comics, was it, or was it DC? Of course. I don't know what gamma rays are, but I know that, that Doc Bruce Banner was belted by gamma rays. But anyway, so... It says that the burst of gamma rays is the most intense form of electromagnetic radiation. But, so, it, so this article is going on to, to describe um, the, the uh, gamma ray bursts that last hundreds of seconds, and maybe they're caused by the dying of massive stars, but whatever it was, though, it took place a long time ago, so, I, so there's one subheading in this article which really caught my eye, and it was this scene that was observed and photographed as being referred to as a 1.9 billion year old movie wow. because it is he it's a, they said observing the event now is like watching a 1.9 billion year recording of those events unfold before us giving astronomers a rare opportunity to glean new insights into things like black hole formation but the point is it's all it's all leading up to the this idea that which is the opposite of the most ancient pagan idea that the world was always here. This was the basis of, right. of, of Aristotle and of so many different philosophies, which when you think about it very deeply, I maintain that it, that is the cause of so much um, uh, um, uh, abrogation of personal responsibility because it's, it, it, it neutralizes the effect of the creator on the universe when you say the world was always here, right? But the, 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 this important building block of Torah understanding is that Hashem created the world from nothing at a certain point. And this is, and as you know, all of science is now abuzz with this idea that it can be pinpointed. I mean, that's the whole goal of James Webb, as we've talked about, is that it can be pinpointed. It can, it can be pinpointed. Anyway, I don't know if you can see this or not, Jim, but maybe our viewers can see this. Oh, that's one of the, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I can see it, thank you. So, you yeah. know, there's a lot of photographs that have been published, beautiful photographs, and this one purports to be displaying thousands of galaxies at once that are in our universe. I mentioned that because there's a verse in Psalms, right? An innocuous verse of King David that says in Psalms 147, verse 4, he counts the number of the stars, he calls them all by name. So every single one of the, of, of the stars in the thousands of galaxies or hundreds of thousands of galaxies that exist are named by Hashem, meaning that it, it's all very personal and very, very intimate and very, very planned. There is a plan for the universe. There's nothing here that's haphazard. And to me, it's all so perfectly aligned with coming out of the sukkah and into the house and starting our year, the new people that we are, so perfectly aligned with the, re with the restart of the Torah reading cycle. Because this, like I said, that's what Jerusalem Lights is all about. We are all entrusted in this world of concealment to reveal Hashem in our own lives and to, and to establish this relationship with Him. So it's all coming together. Yeah. And I, I, I want to say one thing, which I'm two weeks early, but I want to tie all of this, uh, something else that I was thinking about into... Genesis, and again, I issue this disclaimer and apology to our viewers and listeners that 
as much as we want to talk about uh, the Torah portion of Genesis, go go learn it, please, and come back in 50 years, because there's so much, so much to understand. There's so much beautiful detail that our sages share with us about what's really going on. So, so, so here we are in this kind of like, um, like I said, transition from summer to fall, or wherever, or here, or summer to winter, and we're going into the house, and and the days are getting shorter, and we kind of need like a special a special kind of um, um, protection, as it were, we feel, you know, very vulnerable and everything. So what's going on in America? You can tell me better, but from what I understand, this is like, now is like the inauguration of the Halloween season, <laughs> okay? So whereas the whole idea, oh, yeah. the whole idea of, of Parashat Breshit, of the, of, the, of the first Torah portion of, of Genesis, is bringing us back to Hashem. The whole idea of all of these images from space and all of science, like pointing back to Creator, I don't know, there's only so, ma so many shopping days left now to Halloween. And so I received a couple of emails this week from sincere, God-fearing Noahides, from non-Jews who love Hashem, love the God of Israel. And they asked me, is one allowed to celebrate Halloween? Right? It's a famous question that, that people have. Is one allowed to celebrate Halloween? So first of all, it's interesting how when uh, the whole thing that I'm trying to say, everything that we're trying to say about Genesis is that it brings us to this tremendous awe and love and, and um, you know, this, this, this tremendous feeling of being overwhelmed by the presence of the Creator, whereas the whole Halloween thing is this obsession with, you mentioned Edgar Allan yeah. Poe, it's session, obsession with spirits, with the macabre. It's kind of like the other side light, L-I-T-E, because it is like... It is like um, some sort of, of obsession with um, darkness. So, of course, yeah. any, anybody could know what I'm about to say because it takes about three seconds to, 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 look, to look it up. No, there's no secrets. Halloween is a secular holiday today, let's say, but it, it certainly was not, its origins are not in candy and trick-or-treats, candy corn, an old favorite yeah. of mine, if you can find it kosher. But it is rooted in the annual Celtic pagan festival called Samhain that was appropriated. This is interesting. This is the expression that we find in neutral sources like Wikipedia. It was appropriated by the early Catholic Church some 1,200 years ago. It bloomed from the dark nights of the ancient Celtic festival of Samhain, which means summer's end, when people would light bonfires and wear costumes to ward off roaming ghosts, but it was, it was the time that would usher in the dark half of the year, and thus it is considered Halloween to be one of the oldest holidays in the world. And the Celts apparently believe that on the night before, um, the boundary between the worlds of the living and the dead become blurred. Why is this something that I find noteworthy when we are concentrating on revealing the unity of the Creator in all of creation? That's what Breshit is all about, this Parsha, and that's what science is really leading us to, is because this stuff is all pointed towards division, towards like doubt in the goodness of God, towards a struggle over control, as opposed to Isaiah, a very important verse, Isaiah 45, verses seven through five, five through seven begin, I am Hashem and there is no other, besides me there is no God, I will strengthen you although you have not known me, and then and then, in order that they know from the shining of the sun and from the west that there is no one besides me, I am Hashem and there is no other. And then this important verse, Isaiah 45, 7, who forms light and creates darkness. 
who makes peace and creates evil. I am Hashem who makes all these. There's no struggle here between God and this malignant right. force of the devil. The only real struggle, open up your heart in the very deepest way, the only struggle is within man. And that's yeah. the secret of Breshit. That's what it's all about. Like God said to, 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 to Cain, what's your, what's your problem? You know, if you're good, good. But if not, sin crouches at the door, right? And so it's all up to us. But, but this is really uh, interesting because this obsession with darkness, with the macabre, with spirits, with, with um, you know, um, some sort of, um, uh, of dark uh, a power, it's, it, it does something for people. People get off on it somehow. It, it satisfies some, some pagan urge for disunity. And so I, I, I have a wild card for you here because you brought up Edgar Allan Poe. So I, I want to bring up uh, two of my favorite uh, uh, personalities, one literary and not so much, who many would be surprised had a relationship. I know I was. Arthur Conan Doyle and Harry Houdini. Yes, and I know why. Yes. So Arthur Conan Doyle, beloved author, uh, creator of Sherlock Holmes, uh, was right. a spiritualist, meaning that he... Heavy duty. He, heavy duty. He had a very, very strong obsession with the whole idea of communicating with the dead and everything. And I, I, years, ago, years ago, I recommended to you a, short, a very um, little-known short story by Arthur Conan Doyle called Through the Veil. Do you remember this story I, I recommended it. to you? And, yes. and it's amazing because yeah. most people don't associate Conan Doyle with those things. They know he's the creator of Sherlock Holmes, but Through the Veil is about like reincarnation. But anyway, the funny thing here is that, and here's where you really have to open up your heart because Conan Doyle, everybody would think, oh, he is like so stolid. And stolid is the word, and solid and down to earth because he's like, Sherlock Holmes is like all logic and analysis and cold deduction. <laughs> and yet Conan Doyle was a believer in this unbelievable nonsense, right? Now, Harry Houdini, yeah. whose real name is Eric Weiss, uh, whose father was an right. Orthodox rabbi in uh, Hungary, I believe, and um, settled in Appleton, Wisconsin, became a rabbi there. Harry, I could talk for a long time about Harry Houdini. Uh, he's a very, very old favorite of mine and his whole obsession with being an escape artist and everything. Uh, I have a lot to say about how that developed, but that's for another time. But in any event, so Harry Houdini, whose whole life was illusion, he became the strongest opponent to this whole movement of spiritualism. And, right. and what I didn't realize, which is fascinating, is that the two of them were friends and they yes. corresponded, even though they came from opposite sides of the pole. But they both went on extensive speaking tours in the United States of America at a time and I guess it was the very early 1900s or the, or the end of the 1800s, a time when all of this was boiling and it was very popular. And sometimes they would be speaking in the same town in two different you know, hall, lecture halls. And, and one of the main um, uh, kind of like linchpins of, the, of all of this was something called spirit photography. Spirit oh, the, the, the little <laughs> yes, yeah. The, Spirit and, photography. And the little girls, yes, the little girls who took pictures of that, that they purported were fairies. Yes. So spirit yeah. photography was a very popular yeah. thing in those years when mm -hmm. uh, pe people would produce these photographs 
showing, um, purporting to show, you know, someone is just taking a scene of like a little girl playing e with her ectoplasm. kitten. And in the background, there's, uh, yeah. there's some figure and all sorts of things caused a tremendous yeah. to do. This is before Photoshop and every sort of uh, sophisticated yeah. program that we had. But uh, apparently it was very easy to create with what they call double exposure, all sorts of things. So Conan Doyle was a huge believer in these ridiculous f spirit photographs. And Houdini yeah. was, was um, this um, vigilante champion against all things uh, of that nature. And, he, and Houdini would go around, it's just at the end of his life, um, lecturing audiences about how this stuff is all a scam, and Conan Doyle was the greatest. Well, Rabbi, he he was like he was like Abraham going into his father's shop, and and chopping up the, the idols. Exactly. I mean, he he literally was going around and, and exposing these frauds Houdini. and these shysters that were taking people's money. Right. But again, I, I'm only saying all of this um, in terms of the question that I receive. You know, should we be celebrating Halloween or not? I mean, if you I don't know if you want candy and you trust your neighbors to give your kids candy. I mean, that's one thing. But I mean, this other business is very dark. It's very dark and, and, it's, <laughs> yeah. and it's very, very strange that, that people somehow resonate with, with all of that. But um, again, the bottom line that I wanted to point out is that, it, that it, it's all, tr you know, like kind of designed to, bring, to, to plant within a person these feelings of vulnerability and doubt. And the main thing is division as opposed to the total unity of creation and the total unity of all things, which is the truth of Torah. And that science is basically proving and the beautiful, again, the beautiful interaction between yeah. the truth of Torah and the truth of science. It's so absolutely spellbinding. But I found this really um, quite um, amazing, you know, the, the, the relationship that the two of them had. They were both amazing, extraordinary people. And they took opposite yeah. opposite sides of this. What appa apparently, in the in the end of the Victorian age, was a tremendous, tremendously raging debate. You know, this the concept yeah. of uh, it, it was really it was it showed you where the world was in those in, in the days of Houdini and, and Arthur Conan Doyle, and and it's almost like we had likened the the, the creation story of this this roiling mass of of, uh, of elements and and humanity or or especially in those days they were they were churning the intellectual and spiritual pot and trying to get to a place of understanding everybody wanted to get back to Hashem I don't think they a lot of them viewed it that way but um, they the thing that it is uh, remarkable about what you just mentioned about the uh, this this blast of light that they had detected right before the beginning of Sukkot. I mean, that is so very, the timing of that is amazing because what does the Sukkah uh, stand for is the, the creation of the world. It is a model of the, of the tabernacle. And the shadow of the divine presence. And it, exactly. And, and so it's, it's invoking this idea for for the to go the opposite way after Sukkot to step into a, a kind of a new world. One of the things that I wanted to mention, and I'll, if you'll uh, permit me for a minute, is there's another important concept that Brashit introduces after the creation of Adam and Eve, and that is the idea that I don't think a lot of people have really grasped for a long time. It introduces the idea of 
man being co-creator with Hashem. We are co-creators. And I, if I'm not wrong, that idea of, of us being co-creators with God is introduced when Adam is uh, given the task of naming the animals. And it tells us in Breshit that God brings the animals before. Now, this is, by the way, is before, before Eve is created. And the animals are brought, you know, before Adam. Adam Rishon, as he's called by the sages, the first, the first Adam. The, and he gives, and, he, and Adam has this amazing intellectual capacity. This is not some dumb caveman. That's the man of the past. This is the new man. And this, and 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 we know this because first of all, he has the he has the facility for speech, he can speak, and his intelligence is exhibited in the way that Adam can look at each and every animal, and he and he understands how the how the animal functions, it's it's uh, it's in relation to man, and uh, the best example is he names the he names the dog, Kalev. Because what does Kalev mean? Rabbi, it means like the heart. And so the other thing that this shows us is that the reason that God allowed Adam, and I believe uh, the late Rob Schneerson, uh, the, the Rebbe, even wrote a, a treatise on this. The reason that, that Adam spoke and named the animals is that it, God, God said, here are these animals. Now you finish it, Adam. You will individually name them. You will give their individuality. And it's not just that he magically spoke a word and it, it formed an animal. That's not when when the dog, this prim, this primal dog was brought for him, which is probably a, a, what we would today call a wolf. What he did is he they were other animals that were like the wolf. They were mammals like the wolf. But when Adam named the animal, it, it didn't just mean he just spoke the, the word that meant he's like the heart. Everything, you, you can see, you, which means he could see all the emotions in this animal. And that he would be, he would be, he would go to the heart of even a man. That's why he's called man's best friend. But that he would actually take this animal and his, his own, and this is a little bit of quantum mechanics. Adam's interaction with all of the beasts uh, impacted the lives of those beasts in relationship to how they're used by man or how they are used in the world. So what happened is, is he began a process that that Darwinians like to call, um, you know, he ca he called it natural selection. This is how evolution is supposed to have worked. But I, I can't remember the, the 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 phrase. I had it in my notes here. Here we go. I'm looking at my notes. Um, talk amongst yourselves. No. <laughs> oh, artificial, artificial selection. They called what when when for instance I'll, I'll live. I'll use the dog again as uh, an example. There are literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of breeds today that we have as a result of Adam naming that first primal dog and interacting with him. It also meant that he took the animal and used it because because he was given he was given um, uh, what is the word the Torah uses dominion? he was given dominion a dominion uh, thank you thank you dominion over all, all over the animals all the animal kingdom which means that he understood how they would be 
they would be employed in the world. And so what he did is, uh, this is the first one that he really took dominion over. One of the first was a dog. And he is the one that said, we need a kinder, a nicer dog. So mankind actually impacted uh, the the uh, canine world in a way that that after all these centuries we have we have hundreds and hundreds of breeds of animals that began with with a male and a female maybe a wolf of some kind but it was a canine and so this shows you how how naming the animals and taking them and and applying uh, and and adapting them for certain uses the dog was was a was a companion and then the whatever was the original horse was an animal that that uh, uh was used for for labor how about that the snake, point being huh? is how about that snake how about that snake yeah so uh well this the uh, the nachash comes along at the same time that that ahaba does because of course because after all of this uh Hashem basically says to Adam, so what do you think? And Adam says, well, I'm lonely. <laughs> uh, this is for another time. This is for another okay. time. But all right. I all want, right. you, said, you said something about, you, you emphasized the word intellectual when you talked about Adam's doing this process. I just want to add that it was a, also a spiritual um, enterprise. Yeah. Like why did Hashem wait for Adam uh, to do this? And I mean, he could have done it himself. And the verse actually emphasizes whatever name Adam gave the animal is the name that that it was because it wasn't just about use or about how it would be how it would be developed in this world, but it was about Adam perceiving the spiritual essence of each of these creatures in the world. It's kind of like this, the chapter of song again, you know, like what their function is in the universe in terms of of um, being a, a, cre a creation of Hashem, really. Yeah, yeah. So the, the idea being is that is that is that uh, Adam is given dominion over the animals and, and is put in the in God Eden to dress it and keep it. And God basically says, you know, a, a lot of people they 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 read, especially people that really try to access what's in the Torah in Brashit, and it says that at at the end of the uh, six days of creation that God rested. And they say, I said this as a kid, if he's God, why does he need to rest? Well, first of all, it's that creation rested. It's the, it's the idea that he stopped short of perfecting creation so, so that, that we could Adam so that, so that, that hu humanity would help him finish the task, which I think if we think about it really it, it sets us back on our heels to think, my goodness, we better take this idea of building the planet with with more you know with more seriousness than we do. And so this is why we love to talk about Joni's phrase about getting back to the garden. There you go. Because that's really the that's the job. There you right? go. Is to get back to the garden. But the, again, the, there's so much here, and I feel just totally uh, inadequate, you know, leaving our our audience at this point because there's so much going on. We haven't touched it. We haven't touched it. But at least we're admitting that we haven't touched it. There's so much wonder. And what appears to be mystery, but there is an, a deep understanding of everything. It just takes a, quite a while to uh, f to understand it, to plug, to plug into it, to translate it, and to really receive what the whole picture is of 
the creation, how we all fit into it. It's really, truly a lifetime of study. The thing is, when you mentioned Shabbat, you know, again, it's not that he rested as much as he refrained from the activity because the whole concept of what Shabbat represents is a return to the pristine state of things, to the perfection of things. One of the things that I personally am studying very much now in, in this this cycle of Breshit is the fact that as soon as you have the word that begins the Torah with in the beginning, that already implies that there is an end and that there is an end game. Right. Because the sages have this beautiful expression that the, that the, the end of, of, of an action began with a thought. And so when Hashem began His creation, it was with a goal. And the goal is the coming world, as it were, the perfection of the world, which Shabbat represents. Again, all of these things are connected. Well, we have to bless our viewers and listeners with a beautiful Shabbat of Parashat Breshit, a new beginning, a new... Torah reading cycle, but not only that, a new creation of the world, which really not only is going on now, but at every moment. That's the, again the secret of Hashem's name, is that He is constantly renewing all of reality at every moment. So, we have a lot to look forward to. The best is yet to come. Well, that's that's the reason to raise our cups once again, and welcome everybody to the first edition of the show for the for the new year, and it'll chayim to chayim. all of them. <laughs> To Jim. Amen. Shalom, shalom. Everyone have a wonderful week and a wonderful year. Amen. Shalom, shalom.